0: All right, we have a lot to cover this morning, so uh, we'll go ahead and get started. If you would, and you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. You may say, well, that's kind of an odd passage to go to, Ben. This is a class about David and about the heart of David and different aspects of David. Well, that's true, but David's mentioned in Jeremiah 23, so I want to turn there and discuss. So, um, so again, we're continuing our class on David and different aspects of him, and uh, we started talking last week about David as it relates to prophecy, and it's probably the most technical lesson uh, that we'll do in this quarter, So, uh, but I hope that it will be a great faith-building exercise to do, and I'll sprinkle a little application here and there with it. Uh, So I want to just do a brief review real quick of what we covered last week, and then we'll continue on in our study. So we talked about David being inspired of God, inspired of the Holy Spirit, as an inspired writer. Uh, We will get to that later, of course, with the songs that he wrote, the Psalms, but we also the prophecies that he made. Uh, Then we talked about prophecies that were given to him about his kingdom, about his throne uh, lasting forever and prophecies that he had of the Messiah, and we talked about how those related to Acts chapter 2 and the first gospel sermon, how Peter used those uh, there. Then we started talking about David as a figure in Old Testament prophecy, that he was used as a type of Christ. You'll see his name mentioned a lot in messianic prophecy, and that uh, his name stands for Christ, and the Jews knew this about him. So, just a few... um, little uh, points to go over before we get back into this lesson. Uh, We said the prophets spoke in various methods. Sometimes they spoke literally, in their old language. Sometimes they spoke figuratively. We'll see more of that in several of these as we go through them. Uh, The prophecies uh, that uh, were given... Uh, that were fulfilled in the New Testament. These were promised to the Jews. It was part of the glorious future that they were looking forward to, the coming of the Messiah and what he would establish. Uh, We talked about David used as a type of Christ and how you could link that with Christ, David being a king, David kind of representing the spiritual high point of Israel. And so the Jews would look back to him when they would think ahead about glorious times. Uh, We talked about, and we'll see this in some cases here, premillennialists misinterpreting Old Testament prophecy when they take language literal, when they should take it figurative. We'll look at what New Testament writers have to say on those. And uh, so we stepped through the book of Isaiah. Last week, we talked about four different prophecies in there Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, talking about the throne of David. We talked about uh, Luke 1 and Acts 2, showing that that was fulfilled. We talked about the root of Jesse in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 10. Paul pointed to the fulfillment of that in Romans 15. We talked about in Isaiah 22, verse 22, the key to the house of David. Romans 3, verse 7 says Christ has it. And then finally, Isaiah 55, verse 3, we talked about the the mercies of David. Uh, Paul in Acts 13 relates those to Christ and him receiving them. As well, So with that, we go into Jeremiah now and look through some passages there that talk about David and talk about Christ and linking the two of them. One last point to make that I made at the end of class was that one of the techniques the Old Testament prophets would use. You'd see them and they'll prophesy about the return of the captives from exile after they'd been carried off and then smack in the middle of this prophecy They'll have language describing the coming of a figure, of a Messiah, of a ruler who would come and rule over them. And uh, and we talked about that just as surely as the return from captivity was fulfilled, the Jews could count on that the promise of the Messiah would also be fulfilled for them. And that was important to them. During that time of captivity, return from the exile, the period between the two testaments, during the dark and dreary times, they could know that they were going to continue to exist as a people because the Messiah was still promised to them and was still to come. So I bring that point up because here in Jeremiah 23, we're going to see an example of one of the, these here. So let's start with um, verse 3. In this prophecy, we're talking about... A, um, Jeremiah's looking around, God's looking around at the way his people conduct themselves. He's particularly looking at the religious leaders of Jerusalem and how they have not followed what he has said. And he starts out in verse 1 saying, woe to the shepherd to destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. So in verses 3 and 4, he makes this promise that he's going to gather the remnant of his flock where the countries they've driven him. And he will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more. But then we get to verse 5. Listen to this language here. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name, which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Prophecy of the Messiah right there. It's is coming to David, Is the ruler is going to come. And then right after that, he gets right back into the promise of the return from the exile. Look at verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country, that would be Babylon, and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So, um... Uh, so here we see he's describing to David that a ruler was going to come uh, from David to be called a branch of righteousness. Uh, it's very interesting Zedekiah was the last king that ruled in Judah, and he was a very wicked king. we know that, which was ironic because his name means literally, "The Lord is my righteousness." I can't help but think that that God is stating this about the Messiah as kind of a point of contrast to, to the kings that have been ruling. Over Israel. So here we see David was that kingly figure used as the Messianic figure to show Christ coming. Now turn to Jeremiah 30. Verses 8 and 9. Again we see something like this. So earlier in the chapter, Jeremiah has promised to return from the exile. But then we have the Messiah in verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I shall raise up for them. So David being king, prophesies the Messiah who will be king. We know Jesus reigns as king in the New Testament age. Now, one more from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 33. This one's really interesting, and I do want to spend some more time on this one. Um, We're going to read verses 14 through 18 on this. Okay. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cross to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually." So as it relates to David, we're seeing again a prophecy of David's throne uh, being related to here. So um, the good thing that he's promising to them is Christ. Now, I want to make a remark here, particularly verses 17 and 18 here. So when you hear premillennialists talk and they talk about that Jesus is going to come again and he's going to set up an earthly throne and he's going to rule over the nation of Israel, and over all the earth from Jerusalem. If you hear them talk, of course, they talk about the, the Jews returning to their own land, point to what's gone on. Well, okay, they're a nation. That doesn't mean that they're God's special nation. But one thing that you'll hear them sometimes will talk about is what's going to happen next, and that usually has something to do with the temple. The temple is going to be rebuilt. They're going to rebuild it on the, the dome of the rock and so forth. And if they believe that, what else does that imply? That implies the priesthood's going to come back, the Levitical priesthood. And even though it bothers some of them, the most consistent premillennialists will believe that the animal sacrifices for sin must also come back as well. And you say, well, that's a really crazy idea, Ben, based on the New Testament. Where would they get such an idea? Well, folks, they don't make that idea up. They get it from passages like this one because of their interpretive scheme that they apply to it. Uh. And so that becomes a problem for them because we know from this side of the cross in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament, that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. That Jesus has provided remission of sins, and where there is remission of sins, there remains no more offering. So that's a conundrum for them. And it's like, well, how do they get around it? Well, they try to change the purpose of it. Well, they're going to be used as a memorial like the Lord's Supper. That's what it will be. Yeah, right. Um, But in Ezekiel, chapter 45, verse 17, it talks about sin offering being used as atonement. You interpret that literally and apply it to the millennial kingdom. So they contradict themselves in what they believe. So, by the way they interpret it, it gets them at a dead end. So how should this be looked at since I brought this passage up? Well, let's take a look at it and apply critical thinking to this passage. The setting for what Jeremiah is saying to the Jews right now is their nation has been taken away from them. Zedekiah has been taken off his throne. God has said that there would no more be a king that would reign on the throne from Judah. Also, the temple has been destroyed. Daily sacrifices that were offered there aren't offered anymore. So, what God is relating this prophecy to them, he's relating it in the midst of all of that that is going on, and it's used as a message of hope to them so forth. So verse 17 says, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. And then he says the same thing about the priests and the Levites offering burnt offerings. So we know from what we've already covered that the promise of the throne of David was to be interpreted not literally, not as an earthly reign, but as a spiritual reign. The angel Gabriel told Mary that in Luke chapter 1. Peter confirmed that in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus, with his ascension and his glorification, fulfilled the promises that were made to David. So that's how they should be interpreted. They should be interpreted spiritually, and they should be interpreted to apply to the New Testament age. If that's true about the promise made to David's throne continuing forever, does logic not say that that should also be applied to verse 18 and the the priests and the offerings made before them, that those are symbols that he's using? Let's think about the New Testament for a second. Let's ask two questions here. Are there priests in the New Testament? Yes, absolutely there are. Jesus serves as our high priest, Hebrews 7 and 11. And it says that his priesthood is unchangeable. So we know the Levitical priesthood is not literally coming back. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 9, it describes Christians as a holy priesthood. Okay, so that can be applied to the New Testament age as well. Question number two. As Christians, are we under a sacrificial system today? The answer to that is absolutely yes, but not like the Old Testament. We have the offering for sin. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says Jesus has offered his body once for all for remission of sin. Um, Again, in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, not only does it describe us as a holy priesthood, it describes us as offering up spiritual sacrifice. Romans 12 verse 1 says we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 16 says that the fruit of our lips are a appraised as a sacrifice to God. The good deeds that we do are a sacrifice to God. So this can also be applied to the New Testament age as well. And I believe that that is what this prophecy is talking about. It's in accordance with the New Testament, and I don't run into the same problems that the premillennialists do on it. So, and you'll see that happen again and again in some other passages. So... That does it for Jeremiah. I do want to take a look at a couple in Ezekiel. Would you turn to Ezekiel chapter 34, this is very interesting. Now, Psalm 23 talks about the Lord is my shepherd. And Psalm 23 is often given the name of the shepherd psalm. If we were going to apply to a name to Ezekiel 34, I would think we could call it the shepherd prophecy. Now, this is after the captivity, uh, the, the Israelites have been taken away captive. Ezekiel is in Babylon prophesying to them. And in this chapter, God is lamenting the shepherds that were over Israel, the the religious leaders, the ruling class, and how corrupt they were and bad they were. And they had mistreated the sheep that they were over. And God is recognizing this, and so he's going to make a promise to the sheep of Israel. Take a look here at verses 22 through 25. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. It sounds a lot like that figurative language we were going over in Isaiah 11, talking about the wolf and the lamb lying down together. Kind of the same thing, and he continues on in some more metaphorical language there. So this brings up an interesting point about David. As we look at the comparisons that he had with Christ, we most notably think of him being a king, right? And that's how the two of them were linked. But that's not just it. There were other aspects of David that made him a prefigure for Christ. He was a righteous king. He was a branch of righteousness. That's true of Christ as well. He's righteous. David was a shepherd and he had the heart of a shepherd. Also like Christ. David is described a lot in the Old Testament and we see that twice here as my servant David. David had the heart of a servant. Jesus came not to be served but to serve. So this passage points out a couple of other things that David prefigures Christ as well. And I don't know of any direct citation of this passage in the New Testament. But when I read it, it is hard for me not to think about John chapter 10 and what Jesus said and described of himself here. Listen to this here. This is verses 7 through 11 in John 10. Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep... All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verses 27-28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So another aspect that's pointed there about Christ, when he describes himself as the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Well, that's apt to describe Christ that way, but when David was a shepherd, did that not also describe him as well? See, when when the he was protecting the sheep, the bear and the lion attacked him. Did he not put his life on the line to defend them? And of course, Christ literally gave up his life for his sheep. That's us. The relationship that David had with his sheep can also be prefigured with the relationship that Jesus has with us today. The next one I want to look at is a few pages over, Ezekiel 37. This may be the most famous passage that we're taking a look at. This is the chapter where Ezekiel gives his famous vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones and the resurrection that occurs there. And it seems that this is used as an illustration to show the the Jews returning from their captivity again. After that, he has a prophecy of two sticks coming together, showing the two uh, parts of Israel coming together. Well, this shows maybe something else coming in in the future. What's he talking about in this? We get to verse... 23, and there's no doubt about it, we're talking about the Messiah at this point. Here's what Ezekiel says to Israel, and this is what God is relaying to them. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there, they and their children, their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will multiply, establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, beautiful passage. You think of how much hope and joy this would give the, the Jews to have heard this said to them, especially after all they had gone through and had brought about by their own hand. Now, let's take a look at this passage a little bit carefully too. So premillennialists do not believe this passage has been fulfilled yet. They look at it. And I have to agree that if I looked at this in a very literal way, that's what it would sound like. So what is the interpretation here that we are to look at as here, as as David? Well, I'd say that we would have to look at the New Testament over it. First, I want to make the point that even pre would have to say, David is not literally talked about here. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. So we know that's not literal. The shepherd is not literal. That's a figure. So we know that we have that going on in this passage. But for its fulfillment, I'd like to take a look at the New Testament just briefly. So notice that in verse 26 here, he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them when he's talking about all this. He says, I will, it'll be an everlasting covenant with them. If you go, and you might make a note of this in your Bible, you look up at Hebrews 13, verses 20 through 21. The writer of Hebrews, writing to Hebrew Christians, what does he tell them? That God is what, a God of peace? That Jesus Christ is their shepherd? That God makes them complete through the blood of an everlasting covenant, or your translation may say eternal covenant there. The covenant that Ezekiel's talking about in verse 26 has to be the New Testament. That's the only thing it could possibly be talking about there. And then the other thing I want to bring out is that this passage, verses 26 and 27, is cited in the New Testament. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16 pulls lines out of verse 26 and 27 of Ezekiel 37, and he applies it to what's going on then. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Others notwithstanding, when the inspired New Testament writer says that this applies here and that this has been fulfilled, I go with what he says on it, not with what man says. So... So that does it with uh, the major prophets. I want to take a look at three more from the minor prophets. If you would, turn to Hosea 3. This one's pretty straightforward. It mimics a lot of what we have seen in Jeremiah already. So verse 4 and 5 in this chapter, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So there's a future promise of David coming, being the king, that would be the Messiah, that would be talking about Christ. The next one I want to take a look at is a few books over in Amos. I want to take a look at Amos chapter 9. And this one that I'm going to go over is going to tie in with your lesson earlier this morning, Glenn, on it. So in the book of Amos... Like a lot of the prophets, Amos has been talking about judgment. A lot of negative things said to Israel. And the the whole book is almost like that, until you get to the last five verses of the book. In the last five verses, we start getting the, the prophecies of promise. I want to take a look at verses 11 and 12 specifically, because this is an important prophecy even for us today here. Well, they're all important for us, but this one definitely relates to us. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. In fact, I think we saw the word tabernacle in Ezekiel 37 as well. But anyway, which has fallen down and repair its damages or raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. So the Jews, when they would say that he was raising up the tabernacle of David or rebuilding the tabernacle of David, they would take that as a restoration of the dynasty of David. All the good things that they thought about, David, saying that. Okay, so this is another one of those passages. Again, premillennialists do not believe this has been fulfilled yet. But if you study the New Testament, they say otherwise there, and that has major implications. Turn now to Acts chapter 15. This relates to the Gentiles coming into the fold of God and the fold of Christ. In Acts 15, we had seen that the Jews had been starting to be converted there, but there was the question of did they have to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved? And that's what they were talking about in Acts 15 at the meeting here. And so it starts out with Peter talking about his conversion, the conversion of Cornelius that he was involved in. Then Barnabas and Paul in verse 12 talk about the miracles and wonders God had worked through among the Gentiles. When this is done, James then gets up and speaks in verse 13. Listen to what he has to say about it. Afterward, they became silent. James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a a people for his name. So he's talking about Cornelius there. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things, known to God from eternity, are all his works. What James is saying here is that, and he's quoting from the Septuagint on this, that this prophecy was given through Amos, maybe a few bits from other prophets as well, and that this related to the coming of the Gentiles, to Christ, to God, and that what happened with Cornelius and what Barnabas and Paul have been talking about is the fulfillment of this passage. So, the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David happened with Christ's ascension and his glorification. And as a result of that, then the Gentiles could come into the fold of God as well. That's important. That, that, the Gentiles, that's you and me talked about there, which I'm thankful for. But remember, premillennialists do not believe this passage has yet been fulfilled. What's implied for that? The Gentiles don't have hope. If, if what they're saying is true, Gentiles shouldn't be a Christian today, if that were the case. But, but James here plainly states it, that what Amos was talking about has been fulfilled in New Testament times. So there we have with the tabernacle of David, being talked about. I want to now take a look at one more passage, and then we'll be done with with this exercise. I want to go to Zechariah chapter 12 next. Um, Chapter break is not in the best place here. I'm going to read verse 10 and go through chapter 13, verse 1. So we're talking about the house of David in this. Verse 10. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the morning at Hadid-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. It's a very interesting prophecy here. Now, this is quoted in the New Testament. Verse 10, where it mentions that they will look on him whom they have pierced, is quoted in John chapter 19, verse 37. It is applied to the crucifixion of Christ. Specifically, is applied to when they took the spear and they stuck it in his side. Okay, So we know that that line has application to Christ. How should this prophecy be interpreted? I believe the best way to interpret this is to look at the Jews coming to repentance to Christ, starting with Pentecost onward, the ones that did. Take a look at this. Verse 10 starts out, says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Sounds a lot like what Joel prophesied in Joel 2. And Peter said in Acts 2 that that was fulfilled when they could see the, the apostles and them speaking in tongues to all the people. And, of course, they were of the house of David. What about others on the house of David? Look at what they say, he says next. They will look on me whom they pierced. We know this applies to Christ. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Colossians 1, verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And that day there should be a great morning in Jerusalem. So he goes through every family morning there, and we know at Pentecost there were Jews that were gathered there from all over uh, to hear the message of, of God. And then he talks about the fountain being opened. So why do I say it's fulfilled at Pentecost onward? Because this is a very interesting comparison to make with Acts chapter 2. Put your Leave your finger here and turn to Acts chapter 2 real quick, and then we'll end this part of it. So Peter's given this sermon. He gets to the end of it. Look at verse 6. Well, okay, Zechariah 12 verse 10 says, um, they will look on me whom they pierced. All right? Acts 2 verse 36, Peter tells them, therefore let all the house of Israel, that would be the house of David, Know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay. The rest of verse 10. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve as one, for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Going back to Zechariah 12, skipping to 13, verse 1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and foreign cleanness. Look at Peter's response, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And then it steps through about them being baptized, the fellowship they had, then being added to the church daily. So that shows that they, with the house of David and uh, being the house of Israel and uh, Christ and them serving him and them mourning for him and repenting and what Christ offered to them. So that's all the prophecies I know of in the Old Testament that mentions David's name. Specifically. So I hope that's been a faith building exercise for you in looking back and forth uh, between the relation between what the Old Testament said and what the New Testament fulfilled. And we see David's name used to describe this. We have seen this as the throne of David, the tabernacle of David, the house of David, the key to the house of David, the mercies of David, David as a shepherd, David as a servant. We see all these ways, not just as king, but in David's behavior that he was like Christ in a lot of ways, typified Christ. And we talk about the heart of David and wanting to have the heart that he have, Isn't it important for us to imitate Christ ourselves as well in all that we do, as, as Paul tells us in the Corinthian letter, uh, to imitate Christ. So... Um, so I hope that has been interesting to you. I hope that you've learned uh, some uh, some new stuff from that. Um, that's taken up more time than I've wanted it to. So what I want us to do now is step into David, yes, as a writer, but as a writer of songs and of psalms. So um, any comments anyone wants to make before we go into the Psalms next? Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Okay, so so James is talking about Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 specifically, which is Ezekiel's vision of the temple laid out there. And if you read through there, that's one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to, to study. I have to admit that on there. But... In descriptions of this temple to come, what he gives there is, is so out of line with what you would actually build for a temple that it has to be apocalyptic in its language. Even the Jews understood that at, at the time, I think. So it must be describing something future. I believe it's probably an apocalyptic description of the church in, in the New Age. I think it's the best explanation for it. Um, but... Uh, um, but there's a few verses in that where it talks about the sacrifices for sin. And of course, based on what the New Testament says, that can't be literally interpreted. It has to be in accordance to what the New Testament has said uh, there uh, about our lives. So appreciate that, James. Let's go to, to David as, as singing now. And uh, uh, you think about David and all the ways in which he has influenced us in our lives and influences Christians today. It doesn't did, it come up so much, but one of the things that... That I think it does is through the psalms that he wrote, and particularly the songs. The words that he said, but the subjects that he covered as well, still influence us as Christians today. It influences songwriters today. Um, so David's legacy still lives on through this. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 1, David described himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And it's always struck me kind of interesting about David was here you had a man who was a tough guy. Brave warrior, courageous. So you get this one picture of David, and then the other hand you have this picture of David uh, singing, you know, on on uh, to God or playing on his harp and so forth. And it's almost like the two images shouldn't go together, uh, in a way. But but they do. They describe that as David. And to me, when you read through David's life, it does connect. He was a brave warrior, yet he was a singer who wrote praises to God. The common thing between the two of them to me is you you see David and and the way he lived his life, it's obvious that David was a man of deep feeling and imagination. You see that in him being a brave warrior. Think of what he said to Goliath and the courage that he displayed in that. You see that in the love that he had for Jonathan, the friendship that he had with him. You see that in his appreciation for his mighty men and for what they would, would do for him. His mourning for Absalom. Oh Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom! How he would have died in his place if he could have done that! And uh, the battles that he won—he was enthusiastic, but he was—he was a worshiper as well. And you see that feeling reflected in the psalms that he wrote um, as well. And so they cover uh, several different things. So as we go through, we may not finish today. Uh, but we'll bleed over into next week's class and this as well. Our next subject to cover will be covering David as a shepherd. The Psalms are going to bleed into that, so we can have some overlap there if we need to next week um, to go into that. So uh, he composed songs of praise. And you think about David, one of the things that was remarkable about him, if you know the later history of the kings of Israel and how they acted, him compared against them, was that, For the most part, David was a great example of what the king over the nation should have been. He should have been leading his people in their following God, their glorification of God, and worshiping God. And David did that better than anyone else did. And part of the ways that he did that was through the songs that he wrote. It promoted the spiritual edification of the people there in his kingdom. So we're going to look at four little areas of, of Psalms here. And then I'll relate them to, to us today and to what we sing. So it's not often I bring a, a Bible and a song book to class, but uh, we'll do a little bit of that. So, of course, when he wrote songs, he would write songs of praise to God a lot typically. So he would. Uh, we see him in the Psalms praising God as a creator. If you go to Psalm 8, look at verses 2 through 9 um, here. I'm going to flip all the way over there myself. Um, and this is quoted in Hebrews 2, but this is describing God as a creator here. He says, let uh, see, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That last verse sounds familiar. Maybe there's a song that has that in it. Uh, but, uh, but we see uh, him describing God as the creator, and there's some messianic overtones in this as well. Um, so another psalm like that that's famous for that is Psalm 19. Um, let see. What verses do I want to read through this? 1 through 7. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where the voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then he talks about the law of the Lord after that, and praising that uh, as well, so... So we see the, the idea of David looking at the creation and praising God for what he has done for it, for that, right? Let me ask you, is that a theme that we see in songs that we see as, sing as well? Is that not reflected? You can probably sit there and think through your mind about certain ones of them uh, that are. So one of them that comes to my mind in a really old song is uh, The Spacious Firmament on High is one. So a... Um, if I can get to it real quick here. It's funny. I'm not used to flipping through this as much as I am flipping through this Bible in front of me, so the, the pages stick together a bit more um, than I would like. But uh, um, first verse on this The spacious firmament on high, with all the blue, ethereal sky, and spangled heavens, a shining frame, their orig- great original proclaim. The unwearied son from day to day does his creator's power display. Well, that sounds like Psalm 19 there. And publishes to every land the work of an almighty hand. Another psalm that we could see that does this, Psalm 148. Okay, this one's not labeled as as being David. It may have been. I don't know for sure, but uh, this should be... uh, Let me read through this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you stars of light. Praise Him, you heavens of heavens, and your waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded And they were created, and he established them forever and ever, and made a decree which shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all the depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven, and he has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, of people near to him. Praise the Lord. The whole psalm is about praise. It starts with praise, it ends with praise. And praising who? The Lord. Do the words of this psalm sound familiar to you? Question? They should. Because the song that we sing here at West Huntsville, and many of us are familiar with, called Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah, gets practically all of its words from this psalm right here. It's basically taking Psalm 148 and setting it to music. So so we see that there. Uh, One more on this, Psalm 100. This is another famous one. It's a short one. Uh, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his thanks with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Short little psalm of thanksgiving, beautiful to read to, apply to ourselves. This is another psalm that has inspired songs, uh, songs that are are newer in composition than Hallelujah, Praise Deo. But you can hear them taking bits into it. I will enter his his, uh, gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his court with praise. Uh, Verse 3, I am a sheep and the Lord is my shepherd. It's taken part of its imagery from there uh, too. Come before his presence with singing. So... Uh, we see all of that. Uh, that psalm is uh, used to apply to to songs as well. Um, so I'll pause there. We're going to run out of time here shortly. Anyone have any comments that they want to to make at this time or observations? Okay, then. I'm going to stop uh, teaching through right there, but here's what we're going to go through next on here. So we talked about prophecy. I will do a little section where we talk about songs of prophecy and how they relate here. We're going to go through different ones than we've looked at, though. Psalm 22 on the crucifixion definitely has some language there. Uh, I may bring up Psalm 2 as well in that. And, of course, we have to talk about songs of penitence. We'll talk about Psalm 32, Psalm 51. And, and boy, did we not see that written in, in the songs that we have uh, today as well, the coming to God with penitent hearts. We'll talk about songs of prayers as well, uh, Psalm 141, Psalm 142. And then a, um, we'll touch on Psalm 23, and when we we get done with that, then we'll go into talking about uh, David as the shepherd and the compassionate heart uh, that he had. So I hope you look forward to this. I hope this class has been uh, good for you and useful to you. and. Uh, Enjoy your week, and we will see you next Sunday. So you're dismissed. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.